All right, good evening, saints. Go ahead and uh, grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We will flip to 1 Corinthians 2 later, but you can keep, your, keep yourself there at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 1, and I will read it. These are the words of God. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that you have given us your word, you have given us your spirit, which means that we have everything we need. We are equipped by your gospel message. We are equipped with your word, which is the standard that we abide by. And so we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would give us illumination. May we find ourselves um, inclined towards greater obedience because of your word. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, as we continue uh, to see Christianity in our culture shoved to the side, it's important for us to know how to handle that. But before I explain one of the ways we should handle it, I want to explain some of the ways in which we should not handle it. Whenever Christianity is shoved to the margins, the church has a decision to make. One of the things we shouldn't do is compromise on things like doctrine, this is probably one of the foremost decisions that we need to make. Moreover, with bakers and photographers and wedding facility owners getting sued by the intolerant tolerance police, sued for their intolerance, ironically, the wrong thing to do is to assume that our doctrine must change, that we must acquiesce to their demands. When the cultural pressure is turned up, we must not examine our doctrine in the scriptures and say, well, you know, I guess we should go ahead and budge on this particular issue. That's not, that's not at all how we handle this. You don't get bullied into a corner and allow the bully to determine what you believe to be good and lovely and pure and true. The bully is a bully, no matter how warped his doctrine. And I don't care how big he seems to be. Another thing that we ought not to do is second-guess our tactics when the early Christians were being threatened with capital punishment from Rome, that didn't stop their strategy or tactics. Uh, sure, you had some who uh, sort of rescinded their allegiance, um, but for the most part, the Christians uh, stayed strong. Many of them stayed strong. So sure, they faced pressure that you and I may never face, like being burned at the stake in the emperor's garden at night. But just because the ends are different doesn't mean the means are different. There is a major cultural pressure here in our beloved nation, and we would do well to remember what it is we're supposed to be doing. It's never okay during war for a soldier to put his gun down, stop fighting altogether, and instead go out and make a quilt. All the while, gunfire and explosions are happening all around him. So you can't second-guess and change your tactics because you don't like what the opposition is doing. You have to figure out what they are doing, and you have to provide countermeasures in response. 
And not only that, we must get to the point where they are trying to figure out what we are doing. Now, one of the ways that we second-guess our tactics is in how we do this thing called church. Um, I am convinced that, yes, the worship of God, the triune God in the church, is key to cultural reformation. But we don't dare narrowly define worship as merely what we do here right now. Um, Worship, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, ought to be this all-of-life thing. Um, You can go back and listen to that if you missed it. The reality is you won't see repentance in the culture if the church has stopped repenting as well, right? How can we ask them to do something we are unwilling to do? You won't see faith in the culture out there if the church doesn't have any faith, which is why you have the dog and pony show in many churches. Worship becomes about entertainment on a Sunday Um, And preaching is all about comedy and saying nice things, you know, making sure that you don't upset your financial donors. So instead of preaching the biblical gospel, the truth of the kingdom of God, preaching then becomes this sanctified TED talk because, after all, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't rock the boat. And and now, um, since we are um, abolitionists, we are very much okay with sinking the dang boat. (laughs) That's what we're we're fine with that. Now, inevitably then, we second-guess, because of all that stuff, we second-guess our tactics because we're pragmatists, right? We, um, we'll talk about pragmatism a little bit more in a the, in the couple of weeks. But that's inevitably what we do. Instead of following the biblical prescription, we sort of, well, we'll just do what works. And if we can get people in the door because the pastor lights his pants on fire, then so be it. So, to sum up the things we shouldn't do, While Christians are shoved aside in our culture, we shouldn't change our doctrine and we shouldn't change our tactics, Um, right? Just because your car doesn't start, you don't immediately go and say, well, we better take out the engine. You don't start there. Maybe it's the battery, right? So you you do not negotiate an inch on theology and the Word of God, and you do not negotiate on how the Christian life is to be lived. So those are two things we shouldn't do. Now that said, I promised, I I said, um, I told you that there are things we should do, something that should be done, and I'm really only going to talk about one of those things mostly as it pertains to our text. One of the things that we should do is a combination of those other things, right? The theology and the tactics. In fact, we have to have our theology straight on something, and then we can kind of get the tactics straight afterwards, Now, the theology and the tactic we need to get straight is this, judgment. Judgment, one word. Because everything, everything is covenantal. Everything is bound together in some fashion to God and God's relationship to the world. And therefore, nothing is neutral, right? We hound on that a lot. Um, That is, there's no gray areas, right, in God's mind then it follows that God has plans as to how those things work themselves out in the world. In other words, you know, God didn't just spin the universe into existence and then go and leave, um, not like the deist like would, like would propose. No, he has set up a structure that's underneath his authority, and we would be wise to conform ourselves to that said structure. Now, one of the structural things is this issue of judgment. That's why it's important to to know how it fits together. We're covenantal people. 
Judgment matters. Judgment is central. Now, usually when we hear this word, we think of it purely in terms of Judgment Day, right? And either you think of the Terminator movies, uh, or you think of Jesus coming back and judging everyone. So yes, we need to have that category for the final judgment when God does in fact judge the righteous and the unrighteous. But many Christians, I would venture to say the overwhelming majority of evangelicals in this nation, they don't have a clue as to how judgment works in the present day. They, they only know it as a future thing. They don't, they don't understand how judgment works in history, um, except for you know, the Supreme Court and local judges doing their autonomous things. That, that's really the only context we have, generally. Now, what I'm talking about is judgment in the everyday. Judgment in the everyday. Now, the other way that people know about judgment is how our verse is oftentimes misquoted. It's misunderstood. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Right? You, you, I'm sure you've been in this position before. You lovingly share your, your, your theology and your position on things like same-sex mirage and gender and so forth, right? The hot topics or immigration. And, and immediately your statement to someone meets this objection. Don't judge me. Or sometimes, you know, you get the whole only God can judge me, which should never, ever be a term of endearment and never, ever should be a, a place of comfort, frankly. So is that what this verse means? Is one of our tactics, like, is that what we should give up? Should we just concede that, leave it alone, and not bother? Should we always suspend the faculty of judgment, never find fault with others in their worldview, and simply overlook the mistakes and sins and foibles of everyone? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that what Jesus is telling us to do? More to the point, is that how God functions? Are, are we to never speak the truth on a topic which is a key tactic of Christianity, right? We are people of truth. Jesus said to sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. So truth matters to us. We care about it. Um, you, I'm guessing all of you in this room, you didn't wake up this morning and think, you know what? Truth's not that important to me today. I'm gonna go do something else. None of you say that. Why? Because you, Christianity is built on truth, So should we just give up? Should we just be quiet? Should we just sort of suspend that judgment? Um, is that what the apostles do? Well, here's what I would say to you this evening. Christians should be the most judgmental people on the planet. Christians should be the most judgmental people on the planet. Shocking, right? I mean, I can see the headlines now. Local Warrenton pastor. <laughs> so before you get all huffy and disjointed, <laughs> let me explain. So here's the verse. Look at our verse in question. Jesus said, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, as is always the case, people take one verse, they bend it into oblivion, and, and the end product is, is, of their interpretation is so warped that it actually states the opposite of what they think it says. So, as always, we have to read the context. Context is key, right? Conste context <laughs> Here's what you should teach your kids. Context will prevent you from doing something stupid. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. 
Keep reading. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Jesus was often nice. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. If, if you ever wonder what a verse means, just keep reading. Um, read what comes before, read what comes after. The passage is really not hard at all. It's not. It's not complicated. Notice what type of judgment Jesus is actually condemning. The the speck and the log analogy explains exactly what he's condemning here. Jesus is instructing his disciples not to have this casual attitude towards the moral failings of other people. He's not saying, don't ever make a judgment call, right? Or don't ever use discernment. That's not what he's saying. He's stressing the difference between righteous, God-oriented judgment and unrighteous, self-oriented judgment. That's the problem here. God-oriented judgment, which is righteous, and then you have unrighteous, self-oriented judgment, or more specifically, self-righteous judgment. Drawing on the carpentry trade, he obviously learned from his own earthly father. Jesus says that a man whose judgment is self-righteous is comparable to a man with a wooden beam in his eyeball. Imagine a two-by-four just sort of embedded in there. A little gory, a little violent, but think about it. Jesus was often hyperbolic. Here's the problem. This man, he has a serious medical condition, right? (laughs) To state the obvious, he has a medical condition, probably needs the emergency room very quickly. He has a giant piece of wood in his eye. But guess what that man thinks? He thinks that the problem lies elsewhere. He thinks that his condition is really not that big of a deal. He'll be fine. He has two eyes after all. He can use the other eye. You know, the two by four that's embedded in there, it's not that big of a deal. You know, he was out building a deck and whoops, two by four right in your face. In fact, this man is so self-righteous, he's so self-righteous, he's quick to point out the speck, the piece of dust in the other person's eye, all the while having the log in his own eye. Now, to to use a different metaphor, (laughs) it's like a guy with a shotgun wound pointing out the paper cut in your hand. You have a problem. I mean, I realize I have a 12-gauge hole in my chest. You have a paper cut. You should get that checked out. That's what self-righteous judgment does. It blinds you. You can't see. You you don't have a standard that's fixed, that's not fluid, something that's real, a standard that's um, there. Now, the issue in this text isn't about whether or not we are to judge at all. Rather, it's about whether or not we have judged ourselves first by the immutable standard of the Word of God, right? God and His Word, and then we see clearly to help others. That's the concern here. We aren't to serve up condemnation with a side of self-righteousness. 
That's not what we're supposed to do. We are to judge with righteous judgment, which comes from the mouth of our Lord in John chapter 7. So we aren't, we aren't to impute motives to people. For which of you can see someone's heart? If you've been married for five minutes, is it not the easiest thing to do to impute motives to your spouse? We do it in any relationship. We impute motives. So-and-so did this, and it must be because this. As if you have goggles that reads hearts. So we aren't to pretend like we have all the facts when we really don't, and then we assume something about someone, and thus we pass incorrect judgment. The issue in this passage is not about discernment. It's about the fault-finding in others, coupled with this condemnatory attitude which stems from a blindness to one's own imperfections. I'll say that again. It's all about fault-finding in others, coupled with this condemnatory attitude which stems from blindness of one's own imperfections. Right? It's the gossip who gossips about not gossiping. That sort of thing. In other words, I've argued with Baptists and others in the past about the biblical position on alcohol, and ironically, one time the argument happened during a potluck. And you can't, you can't condemn others for using their freedom in Christ to enjoy a nice beverage, right? Not getting drunk, mind you, but having joy in your heart, as the Bible prescribes. You can't do that, all the while downing your third helping of gravy, so you don't get to condemn someone's eating while you eat three Big Macs, you know. So Jesus knows. He knows. He's already taught us elsewhere. The Apostle Paul, as we'll see shortly, teaches the same thing, that we are to judge the world. We are to judge angels, the Bible says. We are to discern everything in God's world by God's righteousness, not man's self-righteousness. That's the issue here. So he doesn't, prevent, um, he doesn't prevent judgment altogether. He condemns self-righteous, condemnatory judgment. That's the issue. He doesn't prevent judgment altogether. He condemns self-righteous. And, and the word righteous and justice are very, very much the same thing. And even if you were to do a Greek word study on those things, they're, they're so identical. So when I say self-righteous, condemnatory judgment, it's, it's, you should think self-justice. Take, in other words, taking the law into your own hands. That's what the problem with the Pharisees was, is they didn't leave the law in God's hands. They took it into their own hands, and they made a mess of things. So at the root level... Jesus is condemning a replacement of God's law with man's law. That's the issue here. A replacement with God's law with man's law. So if you want to set up arbitrary standards for other people, then guess what? He says you better be prepared for, that, for God to use that against you. The measure that you give, and that's where we have all sorts of problems all the time in our relationships because we hold people to a different standard. We do it, parents, with our children. We hold them to a different standard oftentimes uh, because we're the authority figure and we said so. Why? Because we said so. So that's, that's a warning, which means that our judgment, our judgment in this world must be purely in terms of God and his word. 
Okay, so note that. Our judgment has to be purely in terms of God and his word. Man is not God. Man does not sit in the judgment seat of heaven. Therefore, man must not condemn other men um, based solely upon his own self-created standard. So, there's comfort in a place like 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is the transgression of God's law. It's not because your feelings got hurt. It's not because you set up some false standard. It's a tra- sin is a transgression of God's law, not your feelings. So we are permitted to exercise judgment in relationship to God and His Word, but not in relationship to anything else. You are permitted, indeed commanded, to exercise righteous, just judgment. But you can't do it apart from God's Word. Now nowhere in Scripture... Nowhere in Scripture are we told and instructed to abdicate moral standards, to just do away with them, and thus we abstain from judgments of them. You're not told when the Supreme Court makes an unjust ruling, like Obergefell a couple years back, you're not told to just sort of give up the moral ground on that. You're not told to just take it. We defy tyrants. We don't placate them, or we don't um, acquiesce to them. <clears throat> so we're not, we're, not, we're not told to abstain from these moral standards, to just sort of do away with them. We are forbidden from exercising judgment in humanistic terms, man-centered terms. Now, whenever man tries to get rid of God's righteous standards, he inevitably walks around with a two-by-four plank of wood in his eye. And what does he do? He swings it around and hurts everybody in the process. Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't have high standards for ourselves and high standards for the world, but that there is a temptation to want to play the part of God and condemn others in some sort of self-righteous, self-law, autonomous manner. So that's the issue in the passage. If, If you are eager to boss others around, you better look in the mirror first and see just how close to God's law you stand. Otherwise, you're just being a pretentious jerk, right? And you get, you've, how many times have we had that in abortion mill? Why are you out here judging others? Well, because Jesus said we should judge you. Well, you know, the Bible says do not judge. Oh, no, 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 no. He, he was warning against what you're doing. Because your judgment against us just now is not based on God's standard, but your own one. Your feelings are hurt. I understand. See how that works? Now, I need to build the case a little bit more. So go ahead and flip to 1 Corinthians 2. Brother John read that earlier. But I want, I want you to see this for yourself. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This is one of those verses that you should have, you know, handy. It's... Super important for your arsenal. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Okay, that's self-explanatory. The natural man, the unregenerate pagan who does not bow to the triune God, they, they can't accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's why they say, don't judge me. Right? They can't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. 
and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, what is a spiritual person? Someone who appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. No one stands in appraisal and judgment over you but God. So in a sense, yeah, only God can judge me, ultimately. It's here in verse 15 that I find the most pertinent to our discussion. So we've already established the context of Matthew 7.1. It's clear Jesus is condemning self-righteous judgment, hypocritical judgment that considers man's law as opposed to God's law. That's the issue. So he's, he's not eliminating this category of judgment altogether, as so many people assume. He's actually upholding the category. He's just refining it. So the, the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 2 helps us understand how things should be. This is the tactics that I was talking about before. Paul says the natural person, that unregenerate person, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. The foolish person, he says just a few verses before this, is the person who rejects the cross of Christ. It's folly to him. The cross is a joke. The cross is, is ridiculous. You're telling me I worship a Savior? Look at him. He's, he's dead and crucified. So the cross, we know, is folly to the world. And yet, in God's eyes, what does he say it is? It's wisdom. The cross is wisdom. So the unregenerate mind can't understand the things of God because they are spiritually appraised. Now, the word appraised there, sometimes, depending on your translation, it says it's discerned or they're examined. It's the same Greek word in the next verse. Um, but, and we'll go to that here now. In verse 15, Paul answers the question that most people don't know to ask. How do we know what a spiritual person is? How, how do you know? How many of you, have, how many of you have ever said this? I'll raise my hand and say, I'm not feeling very spiritually on track right now. I'm spiritually down. I'm spiritually, here's one of my favorites. I'm spiritually dry as opposed to spiritually wet. <laughs> Funny things Christians say, right? Now, you, you might be tempted to think that a spiritual person is someone who reads their Bible all day and prays all night, never sleeps. Read their, what did you do this morning? I read the entire Bible, <laughs> right? Oh, wow, you are spiritual. That's ten, that's ten, that's, that tends to be what we do. But Paul says that that's actually not true. What is a spiritual person? Who is a spiritual person? Someone who appraises everything. It's a verb in Greek, anakrino. Um, it's the connotation of someone who is, in, who is investigative and in they question things. Um, someone who hears a case. They're examining, discerning the facts of, of what it is. Um, you're examining things closely. You're exercising discernment. Notice um, that this spiritual person... The spiritual person does what? He judges or appraises what? All things. Everything. Everything that comes across your newsfeed on Facebook, everything that you see on television, everything that you read, everything that you interact with, your children, your coworkers, your friends, your family, your church friends, everything runs through that filter of judgment. Spiritual people do that. Spiritual pre people appraise all things. 
They appraise it. What do they do? They size it up in accordance to the word of God. So this is why I say that Christians should be the most judgmental people on the planet. I'm not talking about Christians being jerks for Jesus. I'm not talking about those who name the name of Christ, who constantly look down on other people from their ivory towers, belittling others and needlessly condemning people to hell as if they can actually do that. I'm not talking about us riding up on our high horse, beating people with our proverbial judgment sticks. The judgmentalism I'm talking about is the judgmentalism that the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 2. Christians are called to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This means that we must be smart enough to know that we're really not all that smart because we're not depending on us, right? But we're kind enough to know that it doesn't matter that we're not all that smart. We rely on Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't matter if we win favor with men. That's not what we're out to do. So our calling is discernment. The discernment, the appraisal, the judgment of all things. To be a judgmental person in the biblical sense, in the proper biblical category, is to understand how God's world works. It's not being self-righteous, but using God's righteousness in the world. We we want to be righteously judgmental if we need to qualify it, not self-righteously judgmental. So Paul and Jesus are not at odds here. It's not if we are to judge, it's how we are to judge. Now, consequently, one of the most important tactics of Christianity is this issue of judgment. After all, we are to be judgmental, yes, but only to the extent that we're not being self-righteous And two, we aren't giving people a standard other than Scripture itself. So therefore, if we are to judge with righteous judgment, as our Lord instructs us to do, we have to know the tactics of the people who are trying to push Christianity to the side. Let's bring it back around here. Let's apply this some more. One of those tactics stems from the issue of hypocrisy. Since Christianity is the only consistent position, it follows that any other position is inconsistent and incoherent. It's inconsistent and it's ultimately incoherent. Which means that when a person says, don't judge me, you should reply, but you just did. You judged me for judging you, right? We want to expose this nonsense. And how many, how many times have we done that at George Mason? Often. You guys are not loving. You're being too judgy. You just judged us. Now you're judgy. Welcome to the club, right? Congratulations. So we want to be people who expose evil. We're told to expose darkness in the book of Ephesians. Um, And one of the ways we expose it is actually saying it and actually pointing it out. We must point out the hypocrisy of something like the Women's March, the one where they demanded women's rights, all the while killing little women in the womb. That's the type of hypocrisy that we have to be seasoned to judge properly. Now, the reality is, this is what Jesus was saying about the hypocrisy with the man with the log in his eye. He doesn't hold himself to God's standard. He holds himself to his standard. He's self-righteous, He's governing by self-law. He doesn't doesn't see the problem, but he sees the problem in others. And you've met these types of people, I'm sure. But this is one of the greatest tactics of the enemy. And you see it everywhere. Take, for example, the, the immigration discussion. 
or shouting match, as we should probably call it, that's happening right now. And, and we have attorney generals and um, <laughs> press secretaries and people quoting Romans 13 like they have a clue what it even says. You know, and so all this, all this stuff that's happening, like on immigration, we're supposed to love our neighbor, the, you know, the liberal anarchists cry. <laughs> yes, that's a godly standard. We agree. Absolutely. We should love our neighbor. We should love the stranger. But, see, we have this problem. You aren't loving your neighbors um, when you sec- send your check to Planned Parenthood. Right? They don't have the right standard. They have the log in the eye. So if we want to be spiritual, we must judge righteously. If we want to judge righteously, we must not judge self-righteously, but we must judge all things, appraise all things in accordance with the law word of God. And as I've said before, and I'll continue to say it, the struggle right now, the struggle that's being played out right in front of your eyes, and one that I alluded to earlier regarding Christianity being shoved to the margins, this struggle is a battle of definitions It's a battle of definitions. Who defines what is what and where it goes? That's one of the core issues right now. So the the question we have to ask is, who gets to define the world? Who gets to define what male and female is? The state? Nothing is neutral. Therefore, judgment is inescapable. And, and we all judge every single day. We judge what we want for breakfast. We judge what we want to wear and so on. Everyone everywhere judges. So can we drop the facade? So the question is, are we doing it though? Are we doing it wrong like Jesus warns against? Or are we doing it right like Paul admonishes? So, so the battle right now is definitions. The battle right now is standards. So being from Michigan, I'll share a little tidbit Only one other person will know this. But if you were to go into the Michigan football locker room before a game, they have this little chant they do, and it's called the team, the team, the team, right? They shout that. um, The team, the team, the team. So I've kind of, the motto for Christians, the standard, the standard, the standard. That should be what we chant. Anything and everything that you face in your life, how you handle your money, how the government handles money, <laughs> taxation, justice, prisons, racism, immigration, debt, you name the issue, how to be a good husband and father, how to be a good wife and mother, how to run a church, how to serve in a church. Whatever the thing is, your mantra should always be the standard, the standard, the standard. By what standard? What is the standard? It's in your lap, Scripture. Scripture, to use Paul's language, we, we appraise and we judge all things, which means that you do not get to have an opinion on something that contravenes the Word of God. You don't get to have that opinion. You don't. You don't get to have a theory on something that goes against the Word of God. You, you don't get to create this, this, this statist, you know, conservative socialism light thing where you get to say, well, I know the Bible says how we should treat the foreigner, um, but things are complicated. Maybe we need the Trump wall. 
You don't get to argue like that. You don't. You don't get to have another standard that defies the authority of Christ and his word. You are not permitted to have it. You, that's the log in your eye. <laughs> you don't get to have that opinion. So, for example, here's, here's how you know you're being biblical and exercising godly judgment in the world. <laughs> you make both Democrats and Republicans mad. That's how you know you're doing it right. <laughs> you make Dems mad because they are babies and humans in the womb and not just a clump of cells that you get to discard. You know, and, and marriage is not for Joe and Bill. And, and you make Republicans mad because you point out the folly of their statist idolatry. See, the, the kingdom of God is not a matter of partisan politics. It's a, it's a, matter, it's a matter of power and judgment and all that belongs to Christ, not us. So it, doesn't, it does not matter what the issue is in our culture, in your home or in this church. We have the standard and we would do well to conform ourselves to it and proclaim it in all areas of life. Now, <clears throat> before I wrap up, I want to help you apply this even more because I remember being asked this by a pastor friend of mine a long time ago. And so we were talking. He had seen us engage uh, at the abortion mill in Saginaw, Michigan and saw some pictures and we talked about it and he had some questions, and um, we talked about our need to actually engage the world around us with the gospel, right? And, and this is what we're saying in that. We must pass righteous judgment. But what we're not saying is that somehow we escape that judgment. It has to start with us. And what does Peter tell us? Judgment starts where? The house of God. Judgment starts there. So let me illustrate. Men, let me talk to you for a second. We should care deeply how we do manhood. We should care deeply about that. Not this, you know, John Wayne, you know, beat your chest and grunt loud manhood. Not the frivolous stuff that we've created in our culture. But genuine servant manhood. There's this disturbing trend in our culture, nationwide. It's also in our churches. But uh, men, you are not. You are not to be cowards. You are not to be cowards. You are not to shrink back from your, your duties as husbands and fathers. Right? You are called to, to love your wife, to serve your wife. And that, that doesn't mean that you get to do whatever it is you want with your life. That means... Biblical manhood is death. It's death with Christ. It's death to yourself. You get the privilege to sacrifice what you want in order to lay down your life for others. And we have way too many men who are cowards. And this is one of the reasons Christianity is getting bombarded. Um, we don't have men leading their homes. We have boys who can shave. So I'm challenging you here today. If judgment starts with the house of God, if we're supposed to examine the log in our own eye before we point out the speck in another's eye, if that's true, and it is, then we have to take, take this seriously 
to step it up in our home, in our jobs, in our church, as we serve one another, in this fellowship. The world needs servant king men, servant kings. We're kings and priests, make no mistake, all of us in this room. Children, you are in Christ the same thing. Servant king men, dominion men, dominion men who we care about what God has called us to do. So we've screwed this up big time, and that's because we've lacked righteous judgment. So, so take that exhortation with you today and get some righteous discernment so that you can lead your home and not be led. And ladies, let me tell you something. Yes, you are a gift, a special gift. You are called a helpmeet for a reason. Because you too are in the image of God. You too are leaders. You too are servant leaders. So my exhortation to you would be to reject the feminist nonsense in our culture. Reject the junk. (laughs) And reject it not because it's icky and they wear funny costumes at the Women's March of body parts. (laughs) Don't reject it because of that. Reject it because you fear God more. You fear God more than anyone. Because you have righteous discernment. Be diligent in praying for your man. Outserving one another if If you're not married, be diligent in sticking close to the Lord. And and we men don't like to admit it, but honestly, we know we're immature and we know we're weak. And though we won't admit it, we need each other. We need our spouses. We need our friends. So one of the things we say a lot is all of Christ for all of life. So I want each of you to be in this battle. You too, kids. You're in this battle too. You're in the battle of the kingdom of God. And you're called to use righteous judgment as well. And the conclusions that you draw on all these issues, they must be conclusions that are drawn from the Bible, not Fox News. This is the standard, and we, it must always be the standard. Which brings me to where I started. When things get hard, we can't be changing our doctrine. We can't compromise on the faith that was once, delivered, once and all delivered to the saints. Um, we have a biblical view of all things, and we shouldn't tinker with it. So don't, don't give in to the pressures. Don't give in to the conversations. You go to these... Thank the Lord, Pride Month's over. It's like you go to these, like marches and there are these so-called churches you know hey we love everyone and Jesus said to love everyone and you just think man like one I'm angry and I want to throw a table but two you're sad it's heartbreaking it really is so don't give in to all that pressure to change on views of marriage and gender and we, we need to talk about those things we need to know what we believe but stay grounded on the rock of Jesus Christ and his word. And let's not mess with our tactics either. We are to live our Christian faith visibly, out loud, verbally, in your face. We're not retreatists. We're not anarchists either. We're doers of the word. And honestly, that gets messy sometimes. So don't be a coward. Be bold, right? None of you have read a great novel on a coward, a biography on a coward. Here lies this man. Boy, was he a coward. (laughs) And if they're out there, history doesn't remember anyway. 
So let's have godly people and godly families raising godly children and godly churches, and let's let all of that spill out over into how we talk to the world around us. So yes, let's check ourselves, and instead of being self-righteous, let's humble ourselves before the Lord of glory and live differently. Let's, let's be judgmental, but not in the way of the hypocrite, in the way of the righteous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we absolutely feel the pressure all around us. We see that your law is, has been trampled. It is being trampled in this nation. And we see that your people are being scorned for standing up for that which is true. We see that the humanists have basically taken over the hen house and it isn't pretty. We also know that the only way out of this is through repentance and faith. And we confess, Father, that repentance must start here. So would you grant it to us and then grant it to the world? Father, we come to this time of communion, humbled by your grace. We come having heard your word so that now we get to partake in your word. And we ask that your spirit would stuff that word deep down in our souls. Father, I pray for the men and women here that they would desire to be bold for the kingdom. That you would help husbands and fathers use righteous judgment in how they act and how they live. And I pray for the wives and mothers to do the same. For all of us, God. Would you strengthen this church to the point of being a serious contender for the faith in our culture? And we are zealous for your glory, but we're not as zealous as you. So use us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.